You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge, life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. The global COVID-19 pandemic is testing the healthcare systems of countries all around the world. And this test is revealing an awful lot about what is working and what's not. But across all these many national attempts to get healthcare right, who's doing it best? Well, of course, that question is much bigger than this one crisis. And the answer, it turns out, is pretty darn complicated. So complicated, in fact, someone could write a whole book about it. Lucky for us, someone has. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, we're going to speak to that someone. That would be physician and bioethicist Ezekiel Emanuel, and that new book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare System? He joins us now to give us the definitive answer, Dr. Emanuel. Lots of anticipation on our end. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> of course, uh, being a little bit uh, facetious right there, but, you know, we got to give our listeners uh, a reason to stay tuned, so we're not going to give away. We're not going to spoil it right off the hop. Actually, I want to start off with the more current events angle to all this and get your take on the current COVID crisis that we're facing. And just to give our listeners a little bit more insight into where you're going to be coming from here, uh, here's a little bit more about you. Dr. Emanuel is also a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania, where he co-directs the Healthcare Transformation Institute. Uh, he is, was also a top health policy advisor in the Obama administration and is currently a member of Joe Biden's coronavirus task force. So you've got an an awful lot of angles from which to view the U.S.'s uh, current pandemic response. How does it stack up against the responses we're seeing elsewhere in the world? Poor. Since I'm a professor, we tend to grade people uh, on their performance, and I would say we're hovering about a D. Uh, really bad. You know, you have to work hard in uh, American academia at this point to get a D. Um, we, you know, like most countries, we saw an uptick. Uh, to a peak in March. We were about a week or two behind most of Europe, Italy, and other countries that we thought were going down. Everyone began coming down. Uh, we were, again, just about a week or so behind. But then we saw they have gone down to very low uh, rates of uh, transmission. We, on the other hand, plateaued and then increased now, most recently in the South and West, uh, many states, uh, as, uh, the peak 39 states uh, seeing increases in cases. We're now well above our max peak in uh, March. Uh, we're at 66, 70,000 cases. Um, and, you know, we've just been performing quite poorly and not able to, you know, get our arms around instituting the preventative measures that we know can bring the number of cases down and therefore the number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths uh, down. And of course, part of the national discussion very recently has been where does the U.S. stand in terms of uh, how impacted it is by coronavirus? And there, our own president has even gotten into a bit of a tiff over this, uh, discussing the uh, deaths per 100,000 and uh, what ranking the U.S. Uh, finds itself in there. Uh, maybe perhaps you could give us some clarity, not even in terms of the policy response, just in terms of the impact of number of people infected, number of people uh, who 
have been killed. What should we be looking to to figure out where the U.S. ranks compared to other countries there? Well, <laughs> we, you know, the president said uh, we're, we're great, uh, but we're not great. We have more than 143,000 deaths now. And every metric, the CDC, as well as other uh, independent analysts all show that that is an undercount. There are more people who have died from COVID than the official number because states have been reporting it very differently. And very cases that are very likely to be COVID have been reported as pneumonia or other things. Uh, second of all, we've had you know now 4 million cases. And as the CDC went out and looked, that's probably uh, uh, a tenth of the actual number of cases. So uh, we've had a very high number of cases. Um, and we should be clear, you know, just because you don't die of COVID doesn't mean nothing happens. And again, I think playing down some of the side effects, uh, you know, people can have breathing problems that persist, low energy that persists, uh, abdominal pain and other things that persist. And frankly, because it's so novel, we don't know the long-term consequences. We don't know if people are going to progress uh, in some areas, and it's going to be pretty bad. And so I think uh, uh, we shouldn't sort of not pay attention. Oh, those people had COVID. A lot of those people who had COVID, very slow recovery, persistent problems are, you know, looking like they're more likely. Speaking once again to Ezekiel Emanuel, his new book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? And that was just to sort of set the table in terms of your views on the current crisis that we are up against. But let's take a step back and dig into the book that you just put out, because I think it is a very interesting question that a lot of people have, obviously, in our American debates over healthcare. We are uh, very prone to look to our neighbor to the north, Canada, and uh, feel like, you know, a little bit of healthcare envy for what they have going on up there, feel a little bit of healthcare envy for what's going on in the UK as well. And uh, folks on both sides of the debate will use various parts of those countries to make the point that they want to make about healthcare. But you actually uh, come at this from a, a, a different angle. You make an interesting point that you are actually a little bit skeptical that the systems of other countries could be successfully imported to the U.S. We just have too much baggage already here. It would be hard to graft any of those policies on. So why then did you write this book? What can be learned from examining other healthcare systems in other countries? That's a very good question. And, and you're absolutely right. As I describe in the introduction uh, to the book, I spent years resisting doing this book, trying not to do it. Every time someone asked me, yeah. well, which healthcare system, I would give them a variety of excuses for not uh, answering the question. You know, we can't graph those countries, all the rankings don't work, um, on and on. Uh, but I was, and I admit it in the book, when you go out and look at other countries, you don't have to graph the whole, you know, call it Norwegian system into America or Australian system into the United States to learn some valuable lessons for improving our system. And so uh, we did go out and look at 10 other countries, including China, including Taiwan, Australia on the Pacific side, Canada and UK, as you mentioned, but other less attention, but might have very important lessons for us, the Netherlands, Germany, France, Switzerland. Um, and so it, you can learn a lot. And I would say uh, that's why I, that in the end, I became convinced after doing one or two countries, there was a lot to learn about, you know, what, how we can improve our system going forward. 
All right. Well, that, of course, brings us to the punchline of the book, which country is indeed best? And the answer that you give, you actually, you admit yourself, it is both evasive and frustrating. So what is that answer? That (laughs) there isn't a one the best. There's no country that's an A. Every country has some serious challenges. Um, What we ended up doing was to outline 22 different measures, in part because there are, you know, healthcare is incredibly complex and different people are going to have different things they really care about. So if your primary objective is universal comprehensive benefits, low cost at the point of care, you're going to get, you know, a different set of countries than you will if you're, uh, you know, you're insured and what you really want to know is which country is the best choice of care, which country has the lowest cost when you actually go into the doctor, which country doesn't have waiting times. Um, uh, No country ranks the tops in all of them, but we did find four countries that sort of lots of satisfaction with them and uh, we think have a lot of good lessons for us. Um, They include Norway, Netherlands, Germany, and Taiwan. But when I mention Taiwan, I often put an asterisk at Taiwan. Uh, it's very low cost comparatively, only about 6% of GDP goes to healthcare, high satisfaction. But there are two things that I think Americans don't like about it uh, or wouldn't like if we adopted their system. The first is um, pretty Spartan hospitals. Uh, someone described them as uh, more like uh, uh, college dorms than hospitals that we're used to. Uh, and your family has to often help, you know, take you to the bathroom, feed you, things that we expect to be done by hospital staff and professionals. The second thing is that doctors are hugely overworked. So they're seeing 60, 70, 80, even 100 patients a day. So you don't get a lot of time with your doctor. Um, the satisfaction comes because you can choose any doctor. You can go to any, any hospital. You can uh, order any tests. You can actually walk in and order yourself an MRI. And the costs are very, very, as I mentioned, very low. Um, so that's, uh, th- that's why I put an asterisk near Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a complicated question the whole way through. And that gets to another theme of the book that the answer to the question, which one is best? It really depends on what are your values? What are you looking for? Yeah, what's your from priority a is. system? Exactly. 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 We're going to dig into that question a little bit more in just a second. Real quick, I want to remind our listeners that this is KCBS in depth, their weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, amid the current health crisis, we're reflecting on America's healthcare system with doctor and bioethics. Ezekiel Emanuel, whose new book, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare, looks to the examples of other countries to find lessons for our own. And I'm actually glad that you brought up Taiwan because I have some personal experience in Taiwan. I lived there for about five years in my 20s. And just to illustrate one of the points that you were just making, I I have one personal healthcare experience uh, in Taiwan that gets to all those points very clearly. I actually chipped a tooth one morning uh, at about 8 a.m. And uh, I I wanted to go find a dentist to get it looked at. I walked down the street and I was able to find a dentist within 10 minutes who would see me. Uh, I I got in there. The copay was maybe $15. It was incredibly inexpensive. And uh, they get me in the chair and they start getting to work. Uh, 10 minutes later, buzz, buzz, buzz. They're all done. They show me the mirror and they didn't consult me on this. But what I find out, I look at my tooth and half of half of it has been shaved down. They took away like, a, well, not half of it, but, you know, like enough to get off the little the little chip. <laughs> and I look there and there's, you know, 
part of my tooth is no longer there. In America, you would get a little bit more consultation. But in Taiwan, uh, not just this experience, but I've had this in other Taiwanese uh, healthcare experiences, there's uh, a little bit more of a rush that uh, doctors are going through. Uh, they are, you know, they, they have a lot of patients to see. There's high volume and you're not necessarily getting the level of consultation and explanation uh, that you might expect elsewhere. So again, this just gets to the point of it really depends on what your values are, which one of these countries you're going to admire. Yes. And I would say, you know, one other thing that we, you know, there are many, many interesting things we learned in this process. I'll just mention two for the audience. If you go to Canada, and a lot of Americans like Canada, Bernie Sanders likes Canada, it turns out there's not one national health system there. Each province is really different. There are principles that are national and the national federal government provides money, but each province is different. And one place that the Canadians, you might say, fall short is their national package or uh, minimum requirements doesn't include drugs. Uh, so you don't have drug coverage. It's like Medicare before Part D uh, was added, uh, you know, early in the uh, 21st century. Um, and so that might surprise people. So there are a number of people in Canada uh, who don't have drug coverage. Mostly employers step up and, and give them drug coverage, but uh, you know that's a that that's a deficiency uh, of the Canadian system, which I think most Americans are totally unaware of. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I was uh, a little bit surprised to learn that the Canadian system, you need supplemental uh, health insurance, or most folks are using supplemental health insurance. So this book is really a corrective for, uh, I think, a lot of misconceptions that Americans might have uh, about the ways that other healthcare systems work, and especially the ways that those healthcare systems are used in our current uh, debates about healthcare in the U.S. Because oftentimes, you know, America has this proud tradition of using other countries as examples and as props in our own national debates. And it seems to me that a, a major concern in your work and in writing this book is to uh, more than elucidate what's going on in these other countries, uh, is to help improve the debate that we are having about healthcare and make it a smarter debate. Did I get that right? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. So people can't get away with uh, making uh, certain claims and, and, and nonsense uh, claims. Uh, out there. You know, I'll just give you one, you know, and, and here maybe maybe there are people in San Francisco who are going to be a little upset with me. You know, we talk about single payer and there's a variety of ways you can talk about it. But, you know, there are places that easily get to universal coverage, Germany and Netherlands and Switzerland that don't aren't single payer in the traditional sense where the government pays hospitals, the government pays doctors. They actually pay what are called sickness funds, uh, which are really insurance companies, and the insurance companies then arrange the care uh, contract with hospitals and doctors. Um, now, there's complaints certainly in Germany that they don't do enough to ensure quality. They don't do enough to sort of get a high-performing network. Um, but all those countries have universal coverage, um, and everyone uh, in the system lots of choice. You know, Germany, you can go to any doctor, any time, any hospital in the country anytime uh, with uh, no copay uh, for doctors, primary care doctors. So, I mean, you know, you don't need a single payer to accomplish many of the goals that, uh, in the traditional sense, I mean, many of the goals that uh, advocates for universal coverage and low uh, uh, point of care payment uh, are advocating. It can be done in different ways. And that's an advantage of looking at these other countries. What can we learn uh, from them? 
And that's also encouraging in the sense that whenever we have these debates, it seems like on the one hand, we're posed with the uh, prospect of completely uprooting our entire system and uh, having a, a medical revolution, a healthcare revolution, or on the other hand, essentially uh, doing nothing. And uh, it seems like based on uh, what we're seeing from other countries, it's actually possible to uh, have incremental change that is meaningful. And I think some people would be surprised to hear that. Yes. And by the way, I, I don't think it's the case that the alter- we are going to have some necessarily big reform coming up in the early part of the next decade. Um, and that's because we're having a jump in the uninsured rate. Uh, we have no path at the moment to universal coverage because of the 14 states that refuse to expand Medicaid. We've had a big drop in I mean, tens of millions of people losing their employer-sponsored insurance because of unemployment. And if you think, well, you know, American Airlines has said that it might lay off, you know, tens of thousands of workers. United might lay off. There are a lot of people who potentially in the fall could lose their good employer-sponsored insurance and end up either in the exchanges or on Medicaid. And then, you know, you have a very different, I think, discussion about expanding coverage. Uh, in this country. Right. And that just gets to many of the ways that the current health care crisis is making this debate about the health care system all the more urgent. Just want to remind listeners real quick that speaking once again to doctor and bioethicist Ezekiel Emanuel about his new book, Which Country Has the World's Best Health Care? Now, there is, I suppose, in a way, some good news for America in this book. Uh, America turns out to not be the very worst of the countries that you profiled. I was, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess, Relief is the right word to use here. Uh, what, who comes out on the bottom in uh, in the in the, among the countries that you reviewed? Uh, I think China does, and um, there's a lot of issues and challenges. Uh, let me highlight two. One, it has an incredibly hospital-centric system. There's no as we know at doctor offices where you can go see your primary care doctor, you can go see a cardiologist and get care. It's all based at the hospital. That is, you know, an anachronism. That's old style. Every other country, uh, developed country, the number of hospital beds, the number of hospitals is declining over the last few decades as care has shifted more to the outpatient setting, shifted more to home. um, And China is stuck Uh, because lots of people will not go to anything but a hospital because they don't think that the best doctors work anywhere but hospitals. Um, And that is one of the reasons to respond to COVID in Wuhan province. They had to build all those hospitals from scratch overnight was, you know, that was a miracle that they could do it, but that they had to do it was a mistake uh, built on the fact that uh, their their, uh, care system is so hospital-centric. And the second problem is there is almost no trust of doctors uh, in the system uh, in China. Uh, And there are a lot of cases where doctors are bribed with what are called red envelopes. Before a surgery, you give the surgeon a red envelope so that they'll really concentrate on your care. There have been cases with upset patients actually killing the doctors. Um, Not a good uh, uh, situation. You know, you really can't have top quality medical care without uh, uh, trust. trust. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, want to remind listeners real quick, once again, they are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, which country has the world's best health care? That's the sweeping question posed in a new book from doctor and bioethicist Ezekiel Emanuel, and it's also the title of that book. He joins us now to discuss what lessons the U.S. could draw from the challenges and triumphs of healthcare systems elsewhere in the world. And what I take away from that example you just illustrated in China is that a lot of what any given country is going to take for granted about what is just proper and natural for a healthcare system to look like, it's really the product of a lot of historical happenstance, historical chance. It's just kind of the way that the river ended up flowing. And I think that you draw similar similar historical pathways for the American experience as well. How, what would you say, and and, and obviously we could probably spend the entire uh, 30 minutes on just this one question alone, but uh, just if if we could encapsulate it a bit, what would you say are the major reasons that uh, America has gotten so off the rails in terms of spiraling high prices and not necessarily getting the sorts of care that uh, we sometimes hope for? Well, I (laughs) think that is a very big question. I think we have the wrong incentives. So we have a fee-for-service system, which pays doctors to do more things. Now, uh, many other countries have a fee-for-service system, but they have a fee-for-service system with uh, either very low co-pays or a total budget so that, you know, if people are doing if they're on this hamster wheel and they're seeing patients a lot um, to just drive up revenue, the budget controls for that. You see that in uh, Germany and Taiwan, where if lots of services are delivered, they actually pay doctors less per service um, uh, to you know, constrain the total spending. So one of the reasons our budgets are way high is because we don't have that budget constraint. And that goes along with, so one of the ways we try to control the spending is by loading on deductibles and co-pays to patients, which you don't see in other countries. So one of the trade-offs we see is, yes, we have high deductibles, high co-pays. That's a consequence of paying fee-for-service and not constraining the total amount spent in healthcare. And I think that's a, a you know very good example. Every other country also has... Uh, a way of controlling drug spending. They don't let drug companies set the price. Uh, they have a mechanism by which they connect the price to two items. First, they connect it to uh, the quality. How much healthcare improvement, health improvement does the drug do? And secondly, if there's another drug on the market that's pretty similar, the prices are linked. You can't have a, a pretty similar drug and it's at twice the price, which we often have in the United States. And we can learn a lot about how to, I think, fairly and intelligently regulate drug prices from uh, uh, other countries. So a lot. So you're talking about regulation right there and uh, the potential role that government could play in uh, creating good healthcare outcomes. Does our reluctance to engage in some of that regulation or in some of that intervention, does that perhaps reflect America's own sense of exceptionalism and our own sense that, you know, we we, we really do value market autonomy to a degree that uh, perhaps other countries put less of a priority on that? I'm not sure. You know, if you poll Americans right now, they want drug price regulation. Uh, but getting it through Congress because of the way we our political system works, um, I think uh, you're having uh, that's the problem. And so we have this confluence of uh, uh, political 
problems, um, exacerbating our healthcare problems. We also have this tendency in this country uh, that, you know, anytime if the government were to say have a budget, uh, you know, rat, you know, we saw this in the uh, debate over uh, the Affordable Care Act, rationing, you're trying to, you know, death panels, um, you know, that that's not a helpful conversation to have. So other countries have more reasonable conversations about getting value for money. How much is this spending going to actually improve healthcare? And if it doesn't improve healthcare that much, maybe we shouldn't spend it because you can improve health outcomes, how long people live, how many, by doing other things. Investing in education is one mechanism. We, we Why would we invest in education if we want to improve healthcare? Well, it turns out that works, actually. You know, <laughs> Similarly, making sure people have good jobs. Turns out that works, too, because they have better nutrition. They're able to you know, exercise. Um, so you got to think beyond the healthcare bucket. And we tend not to do that in the United States. And anyone who says, well, maybe we shouldn't be spending that much gets vilified and everyone gets <laughs> scared to broach that subject. But, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to broach it. Um, uh, you know, we have seen in many, many states uh, cutting down on spending on primary education, uh, rising tuitions at state universities. And that's mainly, you know, because of rising state healthcare costs, uh, both through Medicaid and state worker expenses. And, you know, if we want to get a handle on these expenditures and spend more on our kids' education, there's a direct relationship with changing what we do in healthcare. Speaking once again to doctor and bioethicist Ezekiel Emanuel. So you're talking about some of the increasing pressures that our healthcare system is going to be coming under currently, especially given the COVID crisis. You uh, discussed some of the ways that the strains that it's going to put on both individuals and the system as a whole in terms of people losing their jobs, losing their coverage. Uh, that is likely going to push the healthcare question to the forefront. What are we learning from other... And, and, and here, too, you also argue that... Uh, other countries perhaps have some answers for how we might respond to the crisis. What, what do other countries have to teach us about how we might better respond to the COVID crisis and, and make sure everybody makes it through this okay? Well, one thing I would say is that you, you look at Taiwan and they have a health card that, and maybe you can explain this better than I, you have to swipe it when you uh, go to the doctor and when you finish it swiped again so that the doctor can bill for the services provided. And it gives the Ministry of Health near real-time data on actually what people are complaining about, how many people are going to the doctor, which doctors. Mm -hmm. And so during the COVID, early on in COVID, they knew right away, you know, they could send out messages to doctors. This patient, this patient, this patient went, we're in Wuhan, you need to test them for COVID. Or patients are coming in for respiratory conditions, but are negative for influenza, test them for COVID. And that seemed to, you know, allow them to identify patients, isolate them, and, uh, um, you know, restrict the number of the, the spread of the virus. And that very, very important. And that obviously contrasts very sharply with our very fragmented healthcare system here in the U.S. Yeah. We still don't have an electronic health record. You know, if you go to an insurer, you go to a big insurer like uh, Blue Cross of, uh, of uh, California or Blue Shield of California, right? And you say, well... How many people went to the doctor yesterday that you insure? They couldn't tell you, right? And then what did they go for? You know, it would take weeks and maybe a few months for them to confirm that that's not real-time data, and it's hard to manage a crisis using that kind of data. 
All right. Well, uh, certainly a lot of important perspective there. We're going to have to round things out right now. One last time, we have been speaking to doctor and bioethicist Ezekiel Emanuel. His new book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare System? We did not find an answer today, but uh, just looking for one, I think we learned an awful lot. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Emanuel. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for a great interview. And thank you for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Be well. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.